0: We're launching a brand new newsletter. 11FS Unfiltered is a fortnightly installment of hard-hitting opinions on all things financial services. Every fortnight, a brutally honest, no-holds-barred take on a hand-picked topic from one of our experts will make its way to your inbox. To hear from some of the brightest minds at 11FS and join the conversation, head to bit.ly forward slash unfiltered newsletter now. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you BBVA pledges to close Simple and move customers to its US service, Checkout becomes Europe's most valuable fintech, and Visa and Plaid abandon their merger plans. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 494 of Fintech Insider. I'm Sarah Kachansky, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Simon Taylor. How are you doing, Simon?
1: I am really well. I'm excited to be on the show today. We've got some fantastic guests and my God, all the fintech news happened. 2021 started with a bang.
0: It did indeed. Uh, So to discuss those stories with us, uh, we are joined remotely by some awesome guests Uh, making a welcome return. We have Shamir Karkal, co-founder and CEO of Scylla, former co-founder and CTO of Simple. Welcome back to Fintech Insider, Shamir. How are you today?
2: i'm doing great uh sarah simon thank you for having me
0: brilliant lovely to have you um joining shamir and also making a welcome return to the show we have bradley Riss, chief commercial officer at checkout.com uh, welcome to the show bradley you've had a fantastic week but we'll get to that very shortly uh are you how are you doing today you uh, you doing well
3: i'm very good thank you thanks for having me back
0: Okay, let's get straight into it. So, the first story today is that BBVA says that it is shutting down banking app Simple and will transfer its users to BBVA USA. So, Simple was the pioneering mobile and online banking app believed to be one of the earliest examples of a challenger bank. Uh, It was acquired by BBVA in 2014 for $117 million. The closure is part of an ongoing streamlining effort at BBVA as it works on closing a merger with PNC for its U.S. business, uh, which was announced in November 2020. Despite having been acquired, Simple was run largely independently as part of BBVA's attempt to bring on more modern services to attract younger users. Uh, Users migrated to the service specifically to have faster and more modern experience compared to what they were getting through previous incumbent providers. Um, And many of those customers were very long-time users. As a result, there's been a lot of sadness on Twitter regarding the closure of the app. So, Shamir, naturally, I'm coming to you first on this one Uh, as the co-founder of Simple back in the day. How did you feel? When you saw this news,
2: not happy. Um, I mean, you know, it's like a, in a way, it's like uh, watching your kid grow up and leave home, <laughs> and then uh, and then uh, learning that it's being shut down isn't you know uh, was definitely a gut punch, um, especially once you know all the customers on on so many customers on Twitter were like be complaining about it, be reminiscing about like their wonderful experiences. And then uh, several people went out and looked at all the other challenger banks and said, there's nothing like Simple. Where do I go? I can't recreate this experience. And I'm like, well, I got nothing for you. In fact, I'm probably one of the oldest customers of Simple. Uh, I think I got account number two uh, back in 2012. So I'm in the same boat as the users. And, you know, they only... The, the only thing that's really helping right now is just the fact that uh, the, 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 everything else that's happening in 2021 between like an attempted insurrection in the US, which is where I live and, and it's, it's, I just don't have enough time to brood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I was, if I, if I was like jobless and then could just like uh, sink into misery, I might sink into more misery, but right now I'm just like, I got to move on. Got too much to do.
1: Shamir, I thought it was really interesting, though, the sheer outpouring of love from the global fintech community for Simple, the impact that it's had on the industry. You know, now there are many household names that look to Simple as being one of their inspirations. Um, I don't know if you could give me a, a color of some of the things you've you've seen or heard and what you believe the legacy is for, for Simple.
2: I think the the legacy of Simple really is uh is is first of all kind of the global, uh, neo banking or challenger banking space. Uh, I remember back in, oh god, I gotta say this must have been 2013. Uh, this guy from Germany contacted me about this app that he wanted to build, which was basically like a German version of Simple. Uh, his name was Valentin Stalf and I randomly took a call with him and spoke to him about it. And I was like, look, you know, if you are in the US, we'd probably be like competitive, but you know. I have no clue when I'm going to get to Germany and you're going to get to the US. So here's some tips, watch out for this and and be careful of that and best of luck. And you see where N26 is now, right? Um, Since then, I've spoken to like neobanks in, oh God, Vietnam, West Africa, uh, Latin America, of course, UK, Europe, and and of course in the US, right? And um, so many of them, uh, not only credited simple with inspiring them uh, but also actually like reached out and part of their early like uh, you know de- journey and you know hit me up or one of my co-founders or some other early simple employee and uh, <laughs> I had, I had this like w- I have this w- memory of this bank in Vietnam when I was talking to the CEO and and it's it's I feel like you can't get m- much further away on the planet from Portland than Vietnam right um, and yet at the end of it, he was like, can, is there any way that like you can join my board? Because like you understand the problem so well. I'm like, I guess I do. I mean, it's like there are obviously Vietnam is a very different context than, than the U.S. And yet so many of those initial early uh, challenges are, are the same. Right. And it's uh, uh, and I was telling him about this and he was telling me, I was like, yeah, we hit that too. But then this is how we solved it. He's like, good to know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, I think that's part of it. but. Even more than that, I think it's just the overall, like the fintech revolution that has been unleashed. I mean, I spoke to the founders of Chime at one point and they they told me that like when they were raising a Series A in 2014, the fact that Simple got acquired for what was seemed like a high price at the time, uh, with current valuations, it almost seems like a <laughs> uh, de minimis. <laughs> uh, but uh, that really helped them like benchmark and raise a larger amount of money at a higher valuation, which then allowed them to, you know, succeed much better. Right. Um, and so it's that, but also just like the, the whole wave of like uh, FinTech innovation that's happened um, companies, like so many of them, right. Like th- there used to be this thing at simple for like the couple of years after the sale, while I was there, where we would be like, we had an idea database and every new, Startup that launched, whether it was Acorns or Digit or Robinhood or whatever, it would be like, Yep, that's idea number 565. Oh, yep, that's idea number 1200. Literally, in the last 10 years, I have not seen a single fintech which wasn't an idea in the simple database. It had like Five thousand ideas, of which Simple might have been able to execute five in the last decade.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, th- I think it's I think it's very sad news, and and, and clearly, uh, you know, obviously has has a huge lasting legacy in in the challenger banks we're seeing around, uh, you know, across the world. But one of the things I sort of wanted to bring into the conversation was um, we saw a sort of almost a wave of acquisitions of, of challenger banks and, and and some of those services you mentioned, Shamir. You know, they're not quite banks, but they're offering the functionality by uh, large. Incumbents, um, and then we sort of have had a spate um, in the last, even the last sort of couple of weeks of, of banks deciding that actually this this isn't the way to go. So, see BBVA is has, has the uh, the excuse, if you like, of, of streamlining to, to get with the merger. But then you've got uh, Santander, you know, uh, pulling the plug on on Asto um, in the UK, deciding that that isn't the, the way for it to work. So, uh, you know, I, I wondered if you, uh, you know, perhaps you, Bradley, had any thoughts on the the wider market that we're seeing here and about this kind of the, what the potential is for acquisitions of small innovative companies by big banks and whether there's any potential for that to work or whether it's just never going to work?
3: Yeah, you've got to believe that in the eyes of some banks, potential potentially an opportunity to swoop in after obviously the events of 2020 and maybe examine some of the players with great UIs but with weak balance sheets and see if there's an opportunity to partner. Um, that could be in the form of uh, an acquisition, uh, probably most likely. But also, you're seeing a few of the banks not getting acquired. I mean, the likes of uh, Zinja, I think I pronounced that right, the Aussie one. Um, they obviously had a, a group of ex-bankers running, running that show at that neobank. And they, I think a week or two ago, obviously went out of business as well. So I think you're going to see an element of, of a thinning of the herd. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, whenever there's a, a, tr- well, a trailblazer like Simple, you obviously get a lot of copycats of various different forms that come up behind them. Um, that doesn't mean there's room for everyone long-term in the market. I think what we will see is towards the end of 2021, obviously, a lot of these cap tables have been put under a lot of pressure. Um, again, B2C fintech is a tough a tough mistress. Uh, it can be quite hard to, to, to make money, to put it shortly. I mean, there's a lot of uh, cash burn on things like marketing. But I think by the end of the year, you'll see who has and who hasn't survived. And I think of the Remainers, uh, you're going to have a lot of very strong companies there. Now, whether that's in the form of, you know, the likes of a Marcus by Goldman Sachs, something which is in-house innovation from a bank, whether it's, uh, you know, the next simple acquired by a big BBVA style bank uh, to become, you know, their in-house UI, or whether it's the case that some of these banks can, uh, the neobanks continue to go forward on their own rails. I mean, I think that whatever the case is, you're probably going to have a much more robust neobank sector by the end of 2021.
0: I think mean, that's a that's a really good place to uh, to leave that story because we started quite sad and then we ended up on quite an upbeat note there from you Bradley, that will by the end of this year have a have a robust industry so'm I'm, I'm going to call time there and leave it on, a, on an upbeat uh, note. Um, we're going to move on to the next story now, which is that london's checkout.com has become Europe's most valuable fintech at 15 billion dollars. Um, So that's a post-money valuation after a fresh $450 million uh, injection, uh, which it claims makes it the most valuable venture-backed fintech in EMEA and the fourth largest globally. Uh, The investment comes on the back of a series of impressive growth stats, which includes a tripling of payments processing volumes and the addition of 500 new merchant accounts. Alongside traditional large-scale retailers, Checkout.com also provides the payments processing backbone for fintechs, including Klarna, Revolut. TransferWise, Coinbase and eToro. Having doubled its workforce to 1,000 staff members over the past year, the company intends to hire an additional 700 people across all locations in 2021, with big plans for expansion across the US, including the opening of new offices in New York and Denver to complement its current San Francisco operations. Um, Bradley, of course, I'm coming to you first on this. Uh, First of all, congratulations. Secondly, as a CCO, you must have been heavily involved in this raise. So what can you tell us? about it?
3: <laughs> That's a, a broad question. I guess I can choose how deep to go into it. I like that you started off by saying uh, checkout claims, uh, that it makes them the most valuable European fintech. Is there other data that you have that shows that we're not?
0: No, not at all. I just read what's put on the script.
3: Yeah. Well, I, I think the the amount of money raised and the valuation, I mean, of course, they're relevant. Uh, there's a lot of prevailing wins behind the e-commerce sector, the payment sector, the fintech sector. You combine all of those three things together and, and you get, I think, a lot of the rationale behind, behind the latest raise. This wasn't a raise that we needed to make to you know, keep the lights on. It's very much growth capital. Um, and I think for us, it is a milestone, very much so. But as with all milestones, a milestone is only a step on a longer journey. So we're trying not to, to be honest, internally, you'll be surprised about how little you know, waves there are across the organization. It's very much still business as usual. Um, The raise was well-timed. I think it was a recognition of our growth throughout not just 2020, but the years preceding that as well. Um, But equally, hopefully, uh, a recognition of where we're going to be going in the years to come. And obviously, that's not driven so much just by coronavirus, more online transactions. Uh, We like to think of it as a recognition of something we'd already established, which was being a technology leader in the financial services space. Um, Obviously, fintech payments, especially, I I believe, is a very opaque sector. A lot of people I'm sure people listening to this show, even though they may well be very well versed in fintech, if I asked them, you know, what happens when you click buy or order, you know, on your mobile phone app for Uber, or you're getting a a, you know, meal service, does anyone actually understand what the value chain is that links behind this and where technology comes in? Probably not. But that's often the way with B2B fintech, you're solving problems that people aren't really aware of. uh, And that's what we think we do very well. Um, It's not necessarily the most marketable way to Discuss the company, but I think the value that we're bringing to our to our customers, to our partners, that's obviously what's really the the fuel behind this, not the temporary 2020 events.
0: Brilliant. Um, so I, I don't know um, if if anybody else has any any thoughts on this or if we go straight into talking about the uh, topic du jour unfortunately still which is the coronavirus pandemic and the huge growth in payments that we a digital payment sorry that we've, we've seen off the back of it um and you know obviously checkout.com has, has has you know benefited from that but is is that kind of that huge growth we've seen there a permanent change what, what do people think about that also if anybody else wants to congratulate Bradley please feel free to jump in and do so
2: well, the the only thing I can say about like Checkout.com is congratulations. <laughs> that is, uh, I feel like, you know, it's it's one of those moments where you work for, I don't know what, eight years, seven years, a long time, and then you become an overnight success. <laughs> um, and uh, obviously, a lot of hard work went into building what outside in seems like an awesome company. Um, and I just have a lot of questions about like, the competitive dynamic, Checkout isn't as nearly as big a name in the US as it as I think it is in Europe I suspect that that's going to change um, and then especially how you see yourself going heads up with I think the stripe is the other big competitor who is also making inroads into Europe hmm? that's a great moderator question
3: uh, <laughs> it's um' Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard in the payment sector to compare apples to apples because, as I said, it is very opaque. So, who do we see ourselves competing against versus who the market does? It often isn't going to be the same lens that we're viewing that through. And equally, on a on a global basis, to your point around the US, of course, we have different levels of presence and maturity in the markets that we're in. Europe being our home market, of course, you know, we like to consider ourselves maybe not dominant, but definitely, you know, the gold standard. Whereas when it comes down to the US, uh, towards the end of last year, we really put our foot, uh, our foot down on accelerating our US growth. So our plans for 2021 include a massive headcount increase, not just in our existing San Francisco kind of hub, but equally, I think, as uh, was alluded to in the introduction, in Denver and, and New York as well, where we're opening up a uh, physical office space. So yes, we are banking on people going back to physical offices at some point to answer probably what would be a follow-on question there. Um, In regards to the stripes uh, of the world and the others who are out there, we have a lot of respect, I think, for the competition. um, But payments still remains very undisrupted. There's still a lot of very old technology running today's transactions. You'd be surprised at the age of some of these platforms. They're a decade older than the first smartphone. Um, And, of course, you know, in these high-volume, high-growth sectors, really it's technology that allows for that scalability. So that's why we still think that the, you know, coronavirus-induced surge of online. It wasn't really an unexpected surge. It was one that was going to be coming anyway over the next couple of years. Um, so I don't see this traffic necessarily petering off or disappearing. There's also probably been a lot of new consumers who've been introduced to the convenience of online shopping. Uh, I, I can definitely speak to some of my, my older relatives who hadn't, you know, purchased anything online previously. Um, now not only are they doing that, you know, but they they may be using Plaid Link as well as credit cards and everything else. So it's amazing how quickly adoption comes, but I think the best way to look at that is you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And while this was potentially a false change for some people, it was also a change that has been a long time in coming and has a long way still to go.
1: Bradley, can I just jump in there for a second? I think you make something super interesting uh, there about the growth that's been shunted forward. I want to pick up on um, Shamir's point about um, not that well known in the US uh, versus, say, a, a Stripe. I wonder if for some time the European um, sort of tech community has been somewhat discounted, and maybe that's starting to change in the pandemic. Have you seen a little bit of that that um, shift? And, and now being a good time to think globally as a result of uh, you know merchant thinking more globally and and as suddenly the world got a lot smaller when we're all stuck in our rooms in in a weird shape and way Um, and and i guess uh, the other one that's a bit like you guys is Agin, right you guys go after the um the bigger customers and that would, would that be more of a direct comparison versus stripe which is more of a payment facilitator versus a processor so it's two questions
3: yeah i mean someone like stripe again a lot of respect for what they do uh, they're very SME focused. I don't think that's something that they're ashamed to say. And equally, if you look at the sheer number of, of customers they have, it, it it points to that fact. Um, marketing, what is effectively a you know a B to SMB business, you do tend to go with a slightly broader mass marketing approach. Um, in our world, you know, the analogy I always use with uh with our head of marketing is you know, the head of payments at Amazon does not choose the next provider by clicking on a banner ad. Uh, You know, they're going to make a very informed referral based decision. So our go to market has been under the radar because ultimately what we have been doing historically is serving the world's largest merchants. And again, their buying process, their discovery process is a little bit different. Um, so it's probably one of the reasons why we're not quite as visible as Stripe. It's also why we've probably been under the radar. Um, I think last year we became, you know, the largest Series A for a, uh, or the year before Australia, largest Series A for a fintech in Europe. but even then, people had never really heard of us. And the rationale behind that is, of course, that you tend to only hear about big payments companies when they're doing something wrong. So either they've had a massive downtime or you have a wire card scandal, then suddenly they're in the public eye and everyone knows who they are. Um, to be honest, us not being mentioned without us uh, being in control of that, I think is testament to the fact that hopefully we're, we're not dropping the ball.
0: Well Bradley um, thank you for your, Bradley thank you for answering our panel's questions today.
2: <laughs> we're going <laughs> you,
0: to we, uh, we're going to let you have a quick breather because we're going to take a quick pause while we hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They are reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility, while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. This episode is also brought to you by MyTech, digital identity verification trusted the world over. Secure more high-value customers while reducing risk and costs with MyTech, a global leader and enterprise partner in identity verification technology. Create certainty in today's digital world with MyTech. Okay, welcome back. Uh, so the next story in our bumper news week is that Plaid and Visa have ended plans for their monster merger almost a year after it was announced. Visa has called off its deal to buy fintech Plaid for $5.3 billion after the US Department of Justice sued to block the transaction on antitrust grounds. We are confident we would have prevailed in court as Plaid's capabilities are complementary to Visa's not competitive, said Adam. Al Kelly, chief executive. When the deal was announced in January 2020, Mr. Kelly said it would put the combined company at the epicenter of the fintech world. But the DOJ moved to block the deal in early November, arguing that Visa had chosen to acquire Plaid because it was developing a payments platform that would challenge Visa's dominance in the sector. Zach Perry, Plaid CEO, says it has only just begun. We're also stating it grew customers by 60% and added hundreds of banks to the platform recently. Um, So what are our thoughts on this? I suppose, first of all, on the DOJ's uh, decision. Do you think they made the right decision? Um, And then, you know, on top of that, what do you think is is next for Plaid and indeed for Visa? You know, Visa's strategy has been rather scuppered there. What's it going to do instead? Um, Who wants to go first on this one? I have no obvious target on the story. Bradley, I'll go straight to you.
3: Um, I'll comment on the DOJ positioning. And obviously, this was from a a memo, I think, that was circling around Visa describing Plaid as a future competitor. Um, But it's kind of like if you look at Shell or Chevron or BP, you know, one of the big oil and gas guys, if they go and invest heavily or buy one of the renewable energy providers, would that be something the DOJ would look into? I wouldn't think so. So I don't view it necessarily as a competition. It definitely is an aggressive move or would have been by Visa, um, but it's not apples to apples. It's a competing new way of paying using, obviously, more traditional banking rails. Um, it wasn't them buying a competing card brand that I think then would have been them trying to own their own, their own immediate ecosystem. So I'm not sure I agree with the DOJ ruling, um, but equally, it never went to court. So Al may or may not have been right. Uh, We'll probably never know at this point
1: it's interesting timing, isn't it bradley um the famous volcano picture was the uh, was was the was the thing that, you, that was mentioned there uh, and this idea that plaid was going to move in that direction uh, the doj's argument was always that well visa has nearly 60 65% market share in the us it's it's clearly a dominant position if they're acquiring something that could compete with the very card rails itself Uh, then a potential competitor type was being taken off the table and Visa would continue to own it even if the rails were moved from cards to something that was more account-based. And it was a good question to your point as to whether or not that was ever going to happen. But certainly in in a lot of the commentary I've seen online um, in the past uh, sort of couple of days and uh, days since this got announced on Twitter, a lot of the VC community is sort of saying uh, it looks like Plaid themselves may have been motivated to terminate this because $5 billion for a for an API data company seems like a really big price when Visa first pays it. But it's a testament to where we are in fintech that suddenly Plaid could have probably got a better deal. Um, and actually, the growth in neobanking and challenger banking during the pandemic has been so astonishing that why wouldn't Plaid look to go somewhere else? And could they build more by themselves than they could under, under Visa's umbrella? So, Certainly, it seems like fintech Twitter is very, very bullish on this from, from Plaid's perspective. Um, but then also people who are big fans of Visa think this is a good move for them as well because it, it kind of moves them away from being uh, – you know, they were always very friendly with the banks. That's kind of the position. With the big banks, they have the great relationship – Plaid's account data access is not very well liked by a lot of the major U.S. banks. Indeed, many of them have been trying to block access to screen scraping altogether and, and put direct deals in place. And that might be one of the biggest threats in in Plaid's business model. So Visa's business just gets a lot clearer all of a sudden. Plaid may be able to go on and become that competitor or something else. So I think this is a good result all around, personally.
0: Shamir, what are your thoughts?
2: I tend to... I tend to mostly agree with uh with Simon. Um although I think it is it is nuanced, right? Like the DOJ's uh suit was quite interesting in that they claimed that Visa acquiring plaid was not competitive in the sense that Visa was not competing with plaid, but that it, it was a it was an acquisition to block a future competitor, right? So this is like hey, some the shell hears that somebody is building technology for uh, sonar panels and decides to acquire them before they're even launched that seems like a that seems like a real stretch right so uh, I'm not a lawyer and definitely not an antitrust lawyer so I I, I don't know how strong the, lo- uh, the lawsuit was um, but the the, the f- fact is, and and, you know, my company, Scylla, uh, we do ACH payments and we partner with Plaid in the US right now. Um, And Plaid does not do any actual payment processing. They they are a data company. Now, that could change pretty quickly. uh, And they could get into that space. They have all the assets. But at least so far, they've chosen to partner with uh, folks like us and let us do the and, and stripe by the way <laughs> they uh I, I know that you know both us and stripe are, are uh processing partners of of plaid uh so it'll be really interesting to see if plaid actually does get into the space I, I i strongly suspect that they will it's it's a it's a very sort of natural uh movement for them uh but also exactly how they do it right um and uh i i do agree with what you say simon i think uh plaid was the one that Basically, use the DOJ lawsuit as an excuse to walk away from the deal. Um, Five billion in January of twenty seemed like a really uh, good valuation. It was remember it was two X more than their last uh, private round, which was less than a year before that. Right? It was in like middle of nineteen, uh, but now given that they've probably at least doubled in size in 2020 maybe even more than that given the massive amount of like growth in everything online like um, they, they could probably raise at well over 5 and so the and and the the, the problem that existed pre 20 in the markets was there was this big gap between Private company valuations and public market valuations. So, if you look at what happened with Square, they raised at like uh, five billion valuation, and then they basically went public a year or two later at kind of a flat, almost like a down valuation. That's all changed, right? Now you look at what happened with a firm or even less comparable companies like Airbnb, DoorDash, and all of these. It's 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 almost the reverse. You're like, hey, those crazy uh late stage private market valuations might have been a little bit too low honestly like the the public markets value it even way higher than that so uh from plaid's perspective why sell for five which seems like a really stale number now when they can probably raise in the private markets at more than that and if they went public who knows 10 15 what and that's just today obviously they're probably not ready to go public right now and they probably have to invest like a year or more in kind of like the internal muscle building and finance and everything else. But if they choose to go down that route, there's no reason why they shouldn't end up with a maybe a 3x better outcome than what Visa could offer them in less than 24 months. If I was on the board, I would definitely go that way. Right? Um, and so I, I think the it's, it's, it's kind of very natural. The part I don't agree with you on, Simon, I'm not sure this is so good for Visa. Um, you're right, it does bind them more to the kind of their traditional bank customers. Uh, but if you look at tw- the 2020s, I think this is going to be the decade of fintech. Um, there is the global financial services industry is about 17 trillion in revenue is the, n- the number that I've seen. And if you look at all the innovators from PayPal to Scylla, including Checkout and Plaid and everybody combined, we probably don't even have 1% market share of that. Um, And so you're like, where is the 99% of the market? It's with 30,000 banks, brokers, broker dealers, and, you know, old school companies across the globe. I got to believe that by 2030, whatever that number of 1% or less is now will probably be I don't know, 5%, 10%. <laughs> I don't think it'll be anywhere close to 100, <laughs> even a decade from now. And if you believe that, then you're like, well, the future, all the growth is in the fintech space. And if all that Visa is, is providing is a heavily used, but legacy payment system, then I think they, you know, I think they were smart to go after Plaid. And I think it is a long-term loss for them. I
3: think Shamir's had a nail on the head there. <laughs>
0: (laughs) Brilliant. Well, if you want to find out more about this story, we will be covering it in depth on 11FS Newsroom on Tuesday the 19th from 3.30 on LinkedIn Live, where we'll be joined by Plaid's head of Europe, Keith Gross, to tell us more about Plaid's future plans in the wake of this news. Maybe we'll find out whether they are looking at another acquisition or whether they have an IPO in their sights. Um, Speaking of going public, our next story is that online lender SoFi is to go public through a merger with an SPAC. So, SoFi has agreed to go public through a merger with Social Capital Hedosophia Holdings Corp, the 5th or V. I haven't ever heard it said out loud, so um, I I apologize if that's wrong, which is an acquisition company. Um, So, Social Capital is a SPAT, so a special purpose acquisition company, which is a shell company that raises money in an IPO. It then merges with a privately held company that becomes publicly traded as a result. This deal values SoFi at around $8.65 billion and is expected to provide up to $2.4 billion in cash proceeds. SoFi plans to use that cash to pay back debt from the $1.2 billion acquisition last year of payment software Galileo and to grow its business. Um, SPACs, this makes me laugh every time I say it, have emerged as a popular IPO alternative, providing a path to going public with less regulatory scrutiny and more certainty over the valuation and funds that will be raised. Um, Bradley, maybe I'll come to you first on on your thoughts on this story, um, either you know a, a, around uh, Sofi itself and, and the decision to to go public this way, um, or around the uh, increased use of of, of um, you know SPACs as a, as a mechanism for for going public more generally.
3: Path of least resistance. Um, no one likes friction. I don't know. I think that the reduced regulatory oversight. I mean, potentially that could be something which is viewed quite negatively. Um, but at the same time, obviously, it enables you just to get to market so much quicker. So I think the, the broader sort of macro trend we're looking at surrounding all of this is everyone's in a rush to raise money right now. There's a lot of enthusiasm behind fintech. Obviously, Shamir alluded to this with Plaid, you know, who knows what their valuation would be today. Um, there's a lot of, I guess, fintech FOMO in general. So it's really not a bad time to be going out either for a full IPO or to a raise, I think the SPACs, they speak to that. Um, They accelerate the process. And that's really the key value that they're bringing here. And don't forget the fact that the owner of the SPAC, they normally take a pretty hefty commission for that, right? So this is not as simple as, oh, why doesn't everyone just do this? Because there's a big premium to pay. Um, I don't want to throw numbers around, but I've heard things like 20% uh, have been thrown around before. Obviously, I'm sure that's not the case with, with SoFi, but it is interesting that people are choosing to pay that premium to get to market faster right now. So there clearly is an hourglass that has been turned in a lot of people's minds anyway. And there's this rush to get to market ASAP. So I think that's why we're seeing such enthusiasm behind SPACs more than they're solving some sort of longstanding problem or that there's some sort of new initiative. It's just the amount of SPACs we've seen in recent years have really, really accelerated.
1: I think it is a generally held belief though, um, bradley in the um US VC community that the ipo market is broken because of how it works um you know the the sort of the lockup periods create these weird incentives where certain classes of investors get early access and they're not necessarily founder friendly there's the vcs don't really like them because of how they work out so there's a view there that SPACs kind of help solve a piece of that and then they take it public by creating a different exit route so i think there's something to be said for like is the ipo market broken and also Given the amount of like late-stage private companies with high valuations, we're now in a market where there is a, a, an opportunity for for this type of vehicle to take things public that were that just didn't need to go public. They had revenue, there was tons of late-stage capital, so by doing this, they they're kind of playing in that window. This is about um, as much about SoFi as it is about the SPAC for me, though, and SoFi is an interesting business because um, they've been doing pretty well as a lending business into the student segment, but has started to cross-sell. But those monoline lenders of yesterday, I think about, um, is it Lending Club and OnDeck and a few others, especially the ones that have been around, uh, especially the early peer-to-peer lenders, they haven't aged so well. So that how strong is that business over the long term? Um I, I really wonder, you know, just that monoline lender and can they really cross sell? I know they're Uh, Going for the banking license, I think they now have that, and they they may have a different play. But they've also acquired Galileo, and Galileo um, is one of these many companies that describes themselves as the AWS of fintech, a banking as a service provider, um, like a Marquetta, like a Synapse, like plenty of others that have arrived, and everybody's saying that they're that at the moment. But it's it's really interesting. Are you a lender? Are you a challenger bank? Are you a challenger bank and a lender that's also a payments processor? It's kind of interesting to see where they're going to major and where they're going to minor. Their investment deck said, we're going to do all of the above. Um, but it's going to be interesting, where's the market pull and, and, and where's the long-term valuation in it? Certainly, um, Chamath, um, who's the uh, famed investor of, of social capital behind a lot of this stuff, seems, seems very bullish on, on the whole thing, um, and also sent uh, l- winky faces towards Plaid after, uh, <laughs> on, after everything that happened with those guys and visas. So um, I just think this is a super interesting story. Sign of the times, fintech is, is white hot.
0: I don't think, to be fair, that you can be a challenger bank if you don't lend. I think the fact that we often use shorthand for bank as lender, particularly in this country, you, I, I think you have to do both. And But I think the idea of being a standalone lender is, is as you say, Simon, I think it's somewhat outdated in the fintech market. I, I, I haven't seen many examples of companies that have continued to um, succeed with that as their sole proposition. So I think there's a reason we call banks lenders, and it's because it's a complementary proposition. Um, Shamir, I'm going to let you you close us out on this one.
2: Well, so so many things to pick apart there, right? Um, one thing about like to understand about like SPACs versus traditional IPOs is traditional IPOs. Um, there's a very specific process, right? There's like a roadshow, the registration, there's the quiet period, there's the day of pricing, and then the first day of trading, which is where you see these crazy high pops, right? Um, And there's a lot of people who, uh, I think uh, Bill Gurley, um, famous venture capitalist, is kind of one of the folks leading the charge about saying that the traditional IPO process is broken. Um, And it is to a certain extent true i do agree with bill on a lot of the points he makes one of the biggest problems is that in your uh in your kind of like prospectus in a traditional ipo you can't really talk about long term future plans right like you can't really have like elon musk saying that hey i'm my plan is to go out and build a colony on mars 15 years from now uh, that would just never be Put into a, a prospectus. Because really, all that you can put into the prospectus is I think like two years of projections. And and those are very like fine-grained financial projections, which once you go public, you better hit those and beat them by a, at least a dime every single quarter, right? Uh and, and so that that works fine if you're a traditional company growing like, you know, really fast at like 30% a year with very predictable growth. And you take those two years projections and straight line them for another five years and that's how you come up with your model. When you're looking at large, late-stage companies which still have tremendous growth potential and are still growing 75 100% year on year, you have these founders and Many in many cases it's still founder executives who want to talk about their grand vision, not just two, five, seven, ten years down the road, and about like, hey, how we're gonna spend two years or three years building um, a card issuing product, for example, in the case of checkout, or how we're going to go out and three years from now we're gonna take over the Asian market. And that sort of stuff just never makes it into a traditional prospectus because um it just gets cut. And so there is an argument that SPACs are better that way because you can go and pitch Chamath and you can tell him your whole vision of how you're going to continue to take over the world and Chamath is, is, is probably going to get it, right? I mean, he's he's smart enough and and this is the other part of it, right? Like if you go through a traditional IPO, you're going to pay whatever, Three to as much as seven percent to the i bankers. And then whatever value is lost in that massive initial pop, that all goes to the fairly small group of IPO investors that those i bankers will sell into. Um, if you go and do it through a spAC, yes, you might end up paying a 20% premium, but you're going to be paying a 20% premium mainly to Chamath or folks like Chamath who are experienced. Operators who are going to hang around and and help you through those first like six months as a public company and may sit on your board for the next two, five, ten years, maybe. And if you ask many a Silicon Valley exec, like do you want to pay you know seven percent or more if you count the value lost in the pop to a bunch of like you know uh bankers and uh buy-side folks in New York, or do you want to pay? 10 to 20 percent to Chamath who will hang around and help you after that they vastly prefer <laughs> uh, the chamaths of the world right and that's why you see these packs being run by experienced operators uh, folks where you know somebody like a Bradley might be like yes I want to spend 12 18 24 months working with this guy to you know get through that first period as a as a public company and then count him as a friend for the next 10 15 years right um, as opposed to a banker, Sure, I'll see him through the process and then I'll forget him.
0: I'm going to finish that by saying what a friend to have. Uh, The next story is our final story today is that the FCA is sounding alarm bells over high risk crypto assets as banks won't accept transfers from crypto wallets. So these are these are two separate points. Um, The regulator warned that investing in crypto generally involves taking very high risks with investors' money and consumers should be prepared to lose all their money. I rather think that's the case for investments generally, but um, we'll get on to that Um, investors in crypto assets are also unlikely to be able to access the financial ombudsman service or the financial services compensation scheme, irrespective of whether a firm has temporary or full registration with the regulator. Uh, Concurrently, uh, the Times is warning that despite Bitcoin surging to record highs, anyone who wants to take profits might struggle to cash in their gains as some banks will not accept transfers from Bitcoin exchanges. Um, an example here is that HSBC, one of the biggest banks in the UK, does not process cryptocurrency payments or allow customers to bank money from digital wallets. Right. I'm going to go to you first, Simon, but we have seven minutes total for this story. So give us your your hottest take, because I know, Simon, you would love to tell us about this for, for the rest of the show.
1: There was briefly a, another whole podcast series on the on the subject. Yeah, well, look, clearly um, the price run-up is what everybody's talking about. But um, there's a couple of main drivers behind that, and it's really just supply and demand. Um, in recent uh, months, we saw PayPal have added uh, Bitcoin purchases to their app, which is absolutely massive if you think about the number of users they have in the US. About 17% of PayPal users have apparently already started to use that. About 60% of Square Cash App users have bought Bitcoin in some way, and you think about how many users there are of those apps, then it really gives you a feel for how mainstream it is. And it's not necessarily mainstream as a pure pure investment opportunity i do think there's a younger generation of people who sees it as what a part of a portfolio so i think the warnings from the fca are very warranted we definitely don't want to see a repeat of people remortgaging their house to buy a speculative asset absolutely not and do you do take care of yourselves out there people um it's very volatile asset class um but apparently there's there's more and more people looking to looking to see that happen just briefly on the compliance thing you know aml can compliance around Bitcoin is seen as really, really scary, but actually it's it's surprisingly mature. You basically have a transparent record of every transaction that's ever happened. Yes, you don't have an identity attached, but there are very sophisticated ways you can do that. And arguably it's more transparent than the existing financial system. So I think banks will get smarter on this as it becomes more mainstream. Um, and I'll leave it there. I think it's a
3: good thing for the crypto space. I think regulation is a sign of recognition and while it may have a little bit of friction that comes in as part of that, ultimately it leads to more confidence in that sector when you come out the other side. Uh, to your point, Simon, yes, you can do very sophisticated things around AML to make sure that you know your, your KYC processes attached to all this are, are, are really robust. And you know, we work with quite a few of the of the major uh, crypto players in the world, and you look at the checks and balances they have in place for their ecosystems, and they're they're just like working directly with a bank. So I think you're going to see. The current price run, as you state, uh, it is a little bit excessive. I'm going to say 39000 at time of recording. Who knows what it will be by the time this uh, makes it to the airwaves. Um, but yes, like any investment, it, there are risks associated with it. And I'm not sure you could say that Bitcoin is any more or less uh, overvalued than something like Tesla, maybe. I guess the difference is, of course, that Tesla, there's an underlying vehicle that's at the end of it, whereas with Bitcoin, it's all around perception value. But of course, that worked for gold for a few thousand years. So there's no reason to say that this won't be millennial gold or whatever we want to call it. And is just a, to your other point, part of your overall portfolio. It's a store of, a store of value. Um, It's more, I guess, accessible and in theory transferable globally faster than something like gold or cash would be. Um, And to say there's no way to cash it out with this change, I guess there's not. But then if you think about it, if you're on a a Coinbase or a Gemini or one of these uh, sites, you could probably trade your Bitcoin today for a stable coin, which is attached to the USD. So in some ways, you could still cash it out. It's just a case that you can't actually get it in fiat in your bank account just yet. But I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't go in panic if I was someone holding Bitcoin, worrying that you're not going to be able to liquidate it. I think these, uh, this is a temporary FCA injunction, and it's not something which is going to, uh, which is going to stay around for long.
0: I don't think that um, people who are currently holding Bitcoin are panicking yet. I think it might be kind of idea, the idea of kind of a more preventative measure, I think, is what I read into the FCA guidance um, for people who are, who are trying to jump on the next hottest thing. I think the point about the, the bank accounts, uh, you know, the banks being a little bit spooked, um, well, HSBC in particular, we, we should say that there are plenty of other banks that, that will allow you to do this. It's, it's just we brought up HSBC as an example. Um, but I do think the FCA is just trying to cover all. Bases, because uh the last thing they need is people in a in a recession and a pandemic um jumping on the the hottest thing that they've seen advertised on tiktok um and there are you know plenty of people out there who are who are trying to fraudulently make money off the back of this dire situation unfortunately um shamir i will go to you for your closing thoughts and then we're going to go quickly to stories we didn't have time to cover
2: so, uh, I will preface this by saying that uh, my company Scylla issues uh, an, uh, a stable coin on Ethereum and we do have a fair number of crypto customers. Um, so, much more in the US context than the UK context, but I'm sort of intimately familiar with this. Um, I think whenever people, I, I, I totally agree with everything Simon and, and Bradley said, uh, just on that comparison of the traditional a banking system versus crypto. I think there was a UN report which said that the total amount of cl- money laundering that is actually stopped by the traditional banking system is about 0.4% of the total. So it's actually a few trillion a year of money laundering through the traditional banking system. And the all the AML rules out there catch less than half a percent of it. Um, and so I, I feel like actually Crypto is way more transparent uh, and 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 stops a lot more of like the the actual uh, underlying uh, illegal activity. And frankly, if you want to you know do a ten thousand dollar fraud, maybe you do it through Bitcoin. If you're doing a, a a billion dollar fraud, you go to Deutsche Bank, right? Like you don't go to Bitcoin. Uh, so I I, I like I, I I you know it's it's very much to me a case of like the pot calling the kettle black. Hmm?
0: Okay. Well, I think that was, um, that's, a, that's a good place to leave that. Um, everybody is sort of nodding in agreement. Uh, they can't argue with you. So we're going to move on to uh, the stories we didn't have time to cover. Um, these are stories that, um, as I said, we didn't have time to analyze in full, but still deserve a shout out. Uh, Simon, do you want to go first?
1: Sure. So the first one is Grab, um, kind of tied up with City to offer in app loans. Of course, Grab is the Uber equivalent for Southeast Asia with over 150 million uh, riders and I think about 3 million drivers across all of those countries. Um, beginning in Singapore with other regions to follow, um, credit card customers can apply for a personal installment loan or City Quick Cash through that app. They've been eyeing the lending space since embarking on a journey to acquire a digital banking license um, by providing SMEs with quick and accessible funding. Um, so the extension of Citi's consumer lending partnership with Grab allows, follows the launch of, the, of course, the Citi Grab um, credit card in 2019. It's interesting that um, this is sort of a hybrid of um, co-brand and uh, true embedded finance, but uh, in the world of super apps, we, we may see a lot, lot more of this in the near future. going to be interesting.
0: Grab is definitely one to watch, I think, uh, given some other really interesting news came out out about it this week. But we will hold on to that for for the next show. Um, The next story is that Revolut has applied for post-Brexit British banking license. So the company has finally applied for a banking license in the UK. Uh, The PRA and the FCA are going to look at the application um, Revolut already does hold a banking license in Lithuania, um, and it's taking advantage of uh, some European passporting rules to extend banking services to some other European countries. Um, if it does get a UK banking license, the company will be able to offer full service current accounts, much like uh, Starling and Monzodow, Um And the customers will also be protected under the financial services compensation scheme. Uh, therefore, if Revolut becomes a bank and suddenly disappears, uh, customers are protected up to £85,000 per person. I think the short analysis here is that uh, it's taken Revolut a long time to get to this point. It it, a long time ago said it really didn't see the need and wasn't going to bother. Be interested to see uh, why it's changed its mind, though it is saying because it uh, means it's a good way to get. increase customer deposits and increase customers using it as its primary account um, Revolut, uh, as is widely known has had some uh, compliance issues here in the UK so I think the regulators are going to be looking at this very closely but for me the most interesting thing will be to see how quickly or otherwise uh, it gets through the process because um, that has been something that has been brought up previously here in the UK with how long that licensing uh, application well that, that application process does take uh, Simon back to you.
1: Thank you so much, Sarah. So the next story we didn't have time to cover was uh, there's a fintech boom that has helped Cedars to a record-breaking crowdfunding in 2020. So of course, uh, if you're not familiar, um, Cedars is a crowdfunding platform that saw investments top 293 million pounds sterling in 2020 and hitting a milestone of more than a billion pounds invested to date. Um, Fintechs are one of the main categories on Cedars, uh, maintaining the title of the most invested in sector with £78 million put through the platform. Um, the record figures come as reported a loss of £4.7 million during the year ending 2019 um, and straight after a merger with the other major platform in the UK, Crowdcube. Um, And of course, this has been structured more like an acquisition, um, and we'll see what comes of these two in the near future. Um, But I'm uh, I'm interested to see this uh, kind of uh, going. In in Europe, we don't have the angel um, sort of community that's an, an operator that's as Old and mature as you might have in the U.S., Um, I think it's starting to happen in the last three or four years. But it—it really was, I think, uh, these crowdfunding platforms in Europe that gave the beginning of that. You know, sort of uh, a lot of folks uh, that are in the fintech community may have bought their first shares in in a startup through these platforms, and now have gone on to become angel investors as the as the whole community has grown through the U.K. and Europe. So, uh, really exciting to see that that they're getting record-breaking years, and as As an asset class, um, kind of early stage investing platforms have been around for a little while. They've never really set the world on fire, but they they could yet have their moment. And they're certainly a big part of the mix. So um, shout out to those guys.
0: All right. Well, we're going to move on to our and finally story now. Um, and that's uh, two guesses left to access a $175 million Bitcoin account. So, Stefan Thomas, a San Francisco-based computer programmer, was given 7,002 Bitcoin 10 years ago as a reward for making a video explaining how the cryptocurrency works. At the time he was paid, they were worth 2 to $6 each. He stashed them away in a digital wallet and forgot about them. Um, he's also forgotten his password Unfortunately, and he has entered the wrong password eight times. If he guesses the wrong password two more times in his hard drive, which uh, contains the private keys, the Bitcoin will be encrypted and TLDR, he will never see the money. Um, the really interesting quote from him was, uh, "The experience has put him off cryptocurrencies. The whole idea of being your own bank, let me put it this way: Do you make your own shoes? The reason we have banks is that we don't want to deal with all those things that banks do. Um, all right. Um, there's so much we can say here, but like, give me, give me your kind of like one sentence take here each on this, because um, I'm, I, I know that we could probably <laughs> have a debate about this for a while. Uh, Simon, you go first. Then Shamir. Then Bradley.
1: For me, it's just anxiety. Like I've I've had that thing a few times where I don't want to go through the password reset process. There is no password reset process. <laughs> it's just pure pure. I really feel for the guy. Um, yeah. Who wants to be their own bank after all? It turns out um, humans are the biggest problem with that, not the not the technology.
2: Financial intermediaries are not going away, even in the brave new world. Um, and you know, I don't think. Anybody really wants to be their own bank, that's not for 99% of the uh, the world's population. They, whether it's brokers, whether it's bankers, there's always going to be intermediaries who help people manage their assets. Uh, the real promise of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is not that it everybody can be their own bank, but that everybody can have access uh, to the underlying technology. And you don't need uh, a regulator or a government to le- give you that access. So the, 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 what comes to mind is, transfer-wise getting uh, direct access to uh, banks you know, and, and, you know, faster pay in the UK through the Bank of England. That was revolutionary when it happened. Uh, but guess what? Everybody in the world can get direct access to the underlying rails of cryptocurrency if they want to. It isn't for 99% of them. though. No. <laughs> it's for the people who are building those intermediaries. It makes it a lot easier.
3: I see a bit of both. I definitely got a feeling in the pit of my stomach when I first read that headline. So anxiety is what it brought on with me. I mean, I have a panic attack when I can't find my phone for five minutes. Uh, So in this case, I would probably be literally pulling my hair out. Um, But yeah, I I think that like Shamir's kind of got it right there. You know, this is not about someone forgetting their password. If you look more broadly at what blockchain and, and this, and ultimately that whole sector solves for, it is about reducing friction, reducing regulators, uh, oversight. I mean, for banks, there's a lot of manual processes that exist today that with blockchain technology they should be able to solve for. So there's a lot of other areas where when I think of cryptocurrency and blockchain, I don't think of necessarily people forgetting their passwords, but it is a weakness as it stands today. Um, you know, there is no way to recover that. If someone was to you know die and they want to pass on their wealth to their children, did they remember to tell their kid their passport before they got hit or a password before they got hit by the bus that day? So there are kinks to work out, but I think fundamentally take a step back from this one story, which is, of course, quite sad in some ways, uh, and look at the broader picture of what the actual problems are that are being solved by blockchain. I always think that's a good way to to look at any of these issues is the downstream effect of what are we trying to solve for? And someone someone forgetting their password, unfortunately, was uh, was never the intention of of, of what blockchain set
0: out to solve. Well, um, that's where we're going to have to leave it today because um, we are running short of time. But Bradley, I completely see your point. I think it's, it can add to the warning from the FCA in the previous story about how consumers should be careful if they're uh, using this medium, but there are much wider use cases for it. Um, that wraps up this week's new show. Thank you so much to all our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Shamir?
2: Uh, www.sillamoney.com or twitter for that matter
0: where can people find you on twitter shamir Uh,
2: shamir underscore k s-h-a-m-i-r underscore k that's uh i'm pretty vocal on twitter so uh that's probably the best way to hit me up personally
0: brilliant uh bradley how about you
2: yeah i'll be i'll be sure to
3: follow you later i'll come wink at you um, I'm not a spam, <laughs> obviously. Uh, Checkout.com. The clue is in the name. So if you'd like to find out more about the organization, you can see what we're up to there. Uh, or for me, it's probably going to be something a little less trendy. Just find me on LinkedIn.
0: Okay. And Simon, how about you?
1: Uh, find me on LinkedIn, Simon Taylor, I'm on Twitter at sytaylor, or email me, simon at 11fs.com.
0: Perfect. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and it helps others to find the show. Uh, as always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcast11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.